0: Well, uh, hey Mike Hey, Colin How you doing? Doing okay, how you doing? Oh, I can't complain Uh, Um, you know, January You can't complain? I don't believe that Well, I could complain, but it would seem a little bit shallow and, you know, without meaning Okay Kind of like my life Mm. See,
1: look, you fit one in
0: (laughs) Um, what's new? It's sort of, uh, we're post CES. We haven't really started the NAB ramp up yet. Um, oh. but that'll, that'll start pretty soon here. Yeah. Slow week. Um, yeah, it is kind of been a slow week. I think, um, uh, at least in the, in the tech news or the video news space, um, lots of other stuff going on in the world, obviously, but there are a few things I think we can run through. Let's do it. All right. First thing on my list Twentieth anniversary of Adobe After Effects.
1: Yeah. So we were talking about this the other day, trying to figure out when we first started using After Effects. You used to
0: think pretty early on.
1: I think I've been in for fifteen or sixteen or so years of the twenty. Which and isn't too bad.
0: What do you remember about it back then?
1: Um I just remember making very, very bad video art. <laughs>
0: It involved, like, I mean, you don't an need animated to animated very, very right. You just say video art and then. Yeah.
1: I'm uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. It involved, like, a friend's poetry being read and a moonrise, which was all animated. Nice. From stock footage of the moon. And, uh, yeah. Lots of color correction, which was basically, like, tinting things.
0: Yeah. It was good. And a lot of rendering. Yes, that too. A lot of overnight renders and uh, crashes and. Yeah, that was on. I was on the Mac two.
1: That, what was the the VX? 06, what was the one that had the really or... shitty graphics card? Yeah, was it that was like eight thousand dollars? Was that one of the pizza box ones? Yeah, yeah. kind of that. From back to the thicker than that but yeah like same size as the centrist but it was no it was thicker than that it was like the full six inch tall under the monitor deal
0: okay
1: it was like the vx or the fx or something like that
0: oh yeah i know which one you mean yeah yeah like the single most
1: expensive mac ever released other than the 20th century 20th (laughs) anniversary
0: um Yeah, but, I mean, it was also, you know, After Effects, I think, especially because neither of us ever had Amigas or any of that. It was one of those early apps that, uh, you know, let you do some pretty revolutionary things with, with media, with video. Yeah. Um, my first use I think was a little later cause I was still on windows at the time. I don't think it hit windows till 97, but I was using it right around that time. Um, I think my first project was a, a video for a Spanish class, um, that involved chroma keying using a, you know, green sheet or blue sheet. Um, wow. I, and, um, had a like picture in picture thing. I remember, but yeah, I remember like you know, this is ninth grade or something, setting my alarm to wake me up at 2 a.m. and to check the render, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, those were know. good times. Good times. Um, and, and I think rather remarkably, you know, After Effects is, one, still around. Uh, that's not that remarkable because all of Adobe's products, most of Adobe's products from back then are still around. But it's, you know, continued to grow and mature and, and push into new markets and really push up market, which not many apps really do. Um but yeah. after effects I think you know even in the last five years I've seen it used far more on on high-end productions. Yeah. That
1: is true. Although there is a middle tier of production now that there wasn't back then. I mean there weren't effects driven. That's true, yeah. Non-blockbusters. Um but yeah, it's it's an impressive app. Um They've it's, really it's amazing that they've managed to Leverage it for this long without. I mean, very little seems to have actually changed in the app,
0: right? In terms of UI and everything, and it's fairly unique in the compositing sort of effects space that it's in, in terms of the way the interface works and and the fact that it is timeline based for the most part and not nodal and yeah. uh, um you know, after it's it's never been a particularly easy app. Um, it's very powerful and has only gotten more powerful in terms of not only obviously computer science-y progression, but also in terms of um, Adobe's let you dive deeper and deeper into things like scripting and, and that kind of thing. And I've seen some mm-hmm. pretty amazing stuff that people do. Um, And I guess, you know, it, it's another one of these apps that Adobe just keeps cramming more and more of their research stuff into. Um, I think probably to better effect than they do in Photoshop. What do you think? Um,
1: yes, for one reason only, because Photoshop is actually two separate apps that are glommed together. Photoshop is both, a lot of people use it as just sort of like a composite, uh, you know, a still composite sort of app. And a lot of people use it as a photo retouching app. And so... The more stuff they glom into there, the more likely they are to only serve one of two masters with each new, more and more esoteric feature. But it seems like After Effects. I mean, the only thing we do in it is MoGraph. Right,
0: and and there are fewer probably casual users of
1: right. No one's like mocking up their web pages in After Effects like yeah. they are in Photoshop. Yeah, Photoshop. Although I saw an interview with Stu who apparently uses it to mock up interfaces.
0: Yeah, I've done that before, actually. Well, not in After Effects, but with um, Apple's Motion um, to hmm. to show you know user face, user interface interaction stuff. Um, I um, would have never thought to do that. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think it's mostly just because I don't. I can work faster in Motion than I can in Flash or something, which is probably where most uh, designers would do that kind of thing. Or I don't know.
1: Yeah, for me, I tend to find it's fastest to just work in the actual. Next code.
0: Yeah, it's only been in, in cases more for, like, web apps and things where I want to show types of interaction that are going to require a fair amount of development to actually make the interaction work. Uh, sure. You know, using uh, something where I can just keyframe things. But, yeah, I mean, I I, I think I was... Um, well, After Effects is one, is one of the apps that's really benefited over the last few years from Adobe, I think, getting... Um, more serious about polish. A lot of Adobe's apps feel like they kind of went through a rough period, um, in maybe the early two thousands. And I feel like it's become a much more robust application. It's, um, I don't use it that often, but, you know, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah.
1: I'm not going to go so far as to call them polished. Um, I don't, well, less flaky i don't know yeah i mean they've definitely they've it, they were benefited greatly by sort of dumping all the cruft leaving the mac and coming back yeah that certainly helped that's that's probably it um and that's all you know like under underlying sort of design decision stuff um I don't think that
0: extends to their interfaces. No, no, I agree entirely. And they're, you know, a classic example of being stuck between an existing user base and, you know, 20 years of history uh, versus sort of modern design. Yeah, did they ever start over? How did that
1: transition work again? I don't actually remember. I kind of lost track of them when they ditched the Mac. I sort of wrote them off. But they never rebooted on Windows, right? No. So they used to have two separate code bases. Um, The Windows one was obviously more modern because they were a Mac company for a long time before they started on Windows. But then they... I mean, the After Effects that's running now, under the hood, it probably has a lot in common with the one from... 2000 or whatever when you started using it, right?
0: I would... Uh, I don't know. I but mean, obviously they had the 64-bit,
1: and they had to do a lot of other stuff, and they did the whole Mercury Engine rewrite, but yeah. I just wonder how much old code is sitting around in there. Yeah. Because I mean, they never really had a time... They never did that Mac thing where they were like, okay, this version is going to be a lot better, but a bunch of stuff is going to be gone. Right. You know, I don't think they've ever lost a feature...
0: No, and they would never even done so, you know so much as what they did with Premiere and the move to Premiere Pro, which, sort right, of gave them a chance to rethink a lot of things. Um, yeah, they haven't done any of that.
1: It's yeah. sort of amazing that it's been able. Well, Is there but, any other app that's lived this long and not? Well, Photoshop. <laughs> Is there any other company that's lived this long and not
0: rebooted their their applications? Um, I don't think so. I mean. I mean Office has been rebooted. Yeah, Office has been rebooted. FileMaker has been rebooted. Um, I mean, there's not too many apps left from the old Mac days. Everyone, not many people survived the 90s. I mean, Flash really hasn't been, but that's, you know... Uh, Yeah. They bought into
1: that can of worms on purpose. Yeah. Um, I don't know.
0: Well, it would be, you know, again... Adobe. How long has Flash been around? That might be After Effects. I don't think so,
1: but I don't I don't remember really. Because um, I used it before it was Flash when it used to be called uh, Video Works, Video Toolbox.
0: Oh, God, you're old. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting. I don't, I don't know that Adobe ever really opens the kimono, so to speak. Okay. Um, people don't speak like that. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be interesting to know, yeah, how much of that, um, you know, how much legacy code is in there. And also I would I would be really interested to know more about how they maintain their Windows and Mac code bases and what their development process looks like for that. And, I mean, my understanding is they're developed simultaneously. There's not like a we develop on Windows and then port or, you know, anything like that. But,
1: right. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, from what I understand, the entire back end is C++ just cross compiles and then the entire front end is flash or other things i mean i don't think they do, i mean if they do anything they do ui level is sort of shimmed in like i don't think there's a lot of code that day to day they have to write twice
0: that's my understanding as well But um, that'd be interesting to know i mean it's obviously when you take the creative suite as a whole it's a pretty massive i mean what probably the biggest mac code base out there yeah i mean outside of apple for sure right um yeah anywho congrats to adobe for not dying yeah and uh here's to another 20 years jeez can you imagine Oh, I, I don't doubt it though. Uh, It'll be there. Yeah. In 3D though. Um, okay. This it's stuff. already 3D. Come on. No, I mean, the interface will be 3D. Ooh. You really, yes. like, reach in and grab pallets. Hmm. I don't really. Um, the 787. Would you fly one? Um, That's I'm my dog. Not
1: sure I know enough about flying them. Would you fly that.
0: on one? Oh, um, how far? <laughs> would you today go down to SFO and hop a flight to Tokyo if you knew it was to on a flight, Tokyo. So. Mm,
1: I don't know. I think so. They're not that bad, are they?
0: I, yeah, I think I would as well. Um,
1: you I know. mean, it's not like I mean, it's just smoke. You can you can always open a window. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean I, that—that that is scary. Uh, you know, fires with lithium-ion batteries are not easy to control, um, especially in an oxygen-rich, you know, airplane environment. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I, you can always land in the water. Can it's do. Not
1: it. a huge deal. Uh, do those things float as well as the old ones? Yeah, okay. probably better. Have they tried? Uh, I'm sure they, you know, modeled it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they modeled their electronics package, too.
0: So um, the the article I'm going to link to in the show notes is a post that The Verge put up today um, say, asking whether the 787 is a lemon because there's sort of this narrative being constructed that this is a fundamentally flawed aircraft, and I, I don't buy into that at all. And I think The Verge article does a nice job of pointing out that, you know, When the 737 first started flying, a couple of them... They couldn't keep the doors on it. Well, and a couple of them, like, dropped out of the sky entirely because the uh, um, rudder surface controls would, like, reverse themselves in flight. Um and so there were, yeah I mean there the moral arguments. of the story is the seven eighty seven isn't that bad it 's just Boeing can 't make planes, well, but you know the airbus a three eighty had wings that cracked when it first launched. I mean, you know building a plane is hard there 's going to be teething problems, just like with any massive new thing like this. The problem is that you know when when they 've only built fifty of them there's not a lot out there to be in testing. So, you know, having a couple go wrong starts to look like a pretty huge percentage of them are going wrong. You know, if, if Ford builds a hundred thousand new Ford Tauruses and three of them have battery fires, we're not really going to freak out. Right. But that's not how
1: statistics work. I mean, there's no reason to believe that they found the three bad lithium ion batteries on the face of the earth and stuck them into a Dreamliner. Right. I mean, most likely the percentage would scale. Like if they managed to produce a thousand of these, there'd just be 20 times as many planes starting on fire.
0: I don't know. It'll be interesting. I mean,
1: It has to be a design flaw of some kind that they're going to fix.
0: I guess so. I don't,
1: I mean, it's not like the batteries just start on fire on other planes.
0: No, but it could, I, I mean, I could see it being a manufacturing defect, um, Um, they may trace it back to that. I mean, you think about like the Fisker Karma has had to have its batteries recalled because of a manufacturing defect just in the ways that the coolant hoses were routed on a few of the battery packs um, that could cause fires. Um, You know, just missing cable ties or, you know, I don't know, it's going to be interesting. I I will be very curious because I am interested in battery tech, whether they actually go in and swap the lithium ion for something that's um, more stable, Um, even though I don't think any of these problems have been inherently related to the chemistry of lithium ion in particular but um i mean they're using lithium ion on other planes right no no this is the first Mm. plane that's using lithium ion as part of the electronics package hmm Um, it should go back to uh lead acid
1: yeah and or lots and lots of d-sized alkaline batteries they just swap them out every flight
0: well, they could move to like uh, lithium nanophosphate or
1: um, NICAT Even is fine for what they're doing. Yeah, just means they have to pack the seats a little bit tighter.
0: <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting. I hope that I mean m- my biggest concern, I guess, is it doesn't feel like Boeing's getting out in front of this quite as well as they maybe should. Um, now that there's a worldwide grounding of all these planes as of today. Um, you know, none of them anywhere are flying. And I think that, you know, the media loves a story like this. And I feel like you know, Boeing needs to figure out how they're going to fight back um, and win back trust. Because I think there are, there are a lot of travelers who I think are legitimately scared of flying on a 787 at this point. And I don't, blame them necessarily if you're someone who's already got some fundamental fear of flying or if flying makes you a little uncomfortable um something like this could really set you over the edge i think
1: or if you're one of the 90 percent of people who fly you have no idea why a plane doesn't fall out of the sky right you know i mean yeah it runs on batteries now you know so the battery goes the
0: plane can't stay up i'm sure um, I just hope, I mean, I guess the reason I hope that Bo- Boeing gets out in front one, I guess, cause I, you know, Boeing seems like a fine company employs lots of people or whatever, but, you know, because the 787 is this, uh, new generation of aircraft design and we've been stuck in this, you know, for the last 50 years, basically stuck in building planes, identically, you know, steel tubes with big jets um you know we we failed to progress the concord you know the 787 to me was an exciting next step in terms of being built out of carbon fiber with you know an entirely new sort of design principle and um you know some new operating envelopes based on the fact that it's made of carbon fiber and i don't know i would like to see it not get written off because of sort of minor electrical glitches right
1: but i mean no no one's really talking about that, are they? I mean, not, not yet. I mean, There have no, been no complaints about the anything but the avionics.
0: No, no one's canceled orders or anything, but if this... Even if they cancel orders, I mean,
1: none of this is a knock against making a carbon fiber plane. Oh,
0: I agree that on principle it's not. I just worry that if Boeing can't get the story under control and the 787 becomes inherently tainted it may get doomed
1: in mm, general. I don't know. It seems to me that, like, the, the you know, the thing, the concept that's getting tarred and feathered here is the outsourcing components and doing just-in-time. Yeah. I mean, which is sort of surprising because none of it comes back to all of the uh, union disputes. Right. That were big during the play. I mean... No, one, no, one. No, one, no one's going to go so far as to say that Americans should still make these planes <laughs> for, for a good wage. But if we figure out a way to not have any foreigners touch it while they were building it, that would be good.
0: That'd be it, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know how. Maybe robots. Yeah. Foreign-made robots building the planes in America. I think that'd be okay.
0: Well, there, are certainly not going to be American-made robots.
1: Out there, wait! Come on, there's that there's that company out of Portland or whatever builds a little what a Burning Man. No, they make the aren't they out of Portland? Where are the people who do the little uh, the like they're called like Willow Grove or I don't know. The guys who have the open source toolkit for making
0: robots. I don't know them. I don't know. Um, anyways, I, you know, I, I look forward to flying a 787 one day. I was kind of hoping this, uh, I just booked some flights to Southeast Asia and I was kind of hoping one of them would be a 787, but, uh, doesn't look like any of them are, although that could change. Um, yeah. Although it's not changing in that direction right now. Well, no, but I mean, the, the, the flights are on airlines that operate the 787 and I'm assuming that by May, uh, the 787 will be back in service. So. Let's hope so. We will see. Um, but seven sevens are nice as well. I haven't flown an A380 yet either. That'd be fun. But I think you have to fly like... I don't know what route says fly. London to Sydney or something. I don't know. Uh, Chromebooks. Have you followed Chromebooks at all? Um, just a tiny bit. I... So, Chromebooks first came out in like 2009, and the idea was to build really cheap laptops that booted into the Chrome browser, essentially. They run Linux behind the scenes, but okay. Chrome OS. Which yeah, is, yeah. So, I yeah. mean, their Chrome OS, which is an OS that is entirely built around the Chrome browser, there is no desktop, there is there's no, no file windowing system, there's anything, no yeah. other applications. It's just Chrome browser. They're really cheap. Uh, they have a lot of con- connectivity, Wi-Fi, and then often three G, four G, and and um, they were really horrible when they first came out. Um, and I, I played with the first sort of developer unit that Google shipped, and it was just not good um yeah and i'd sort of written it off but in the last six months even the last three months they've really come roaring back and not only in the news but just in my day-to-day conversations i'm hearing a lot more people talking about actively purchasing them or even switching over to them yeah huh You know, especially at a place like um, the University of Minnesota where everyone's transitioned to this Google ecosystem for mail and docs and everything, there's a lot of people starting to talk about a Chromebook as their only computer. That's, wow. That's just not my use case. Yeah. Well, same here. And so I think that also makes it harder to, you know, understand why people would be making that choice. But it's, it's interesting, and obviously it's a threat to the rest of the computing ecosystem um apple and microsoft you know because these are really cheap and um shut everyone else out but uh, it'll be interesting to watch i i just i don't understand the draw of this versus something running android
1: um
0: i think it's you know
1: they, i mean other than that they
0: haven't really pushed the this form the laptop form factor for right, it. right. i think that's a a big part of it and also you know, the, yeah, the Android app ecosystem is designed around touch and um, not around trackpad and, and keyboard. But, uh, you know, there's no reason it, it... From a development perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Google is pushing both of these routes simultaneously. It would seem to make a lot more sense to just have sort of Android builds that acted more like Chrome OS rather than actually maintaining these as two separate platforms, but... Um, Right, You know, I can certainly understand. I mean, for a lot of the people for whom an iPad is an acceptable-only computer, a Chromebook makes sense as well.
1: Uh, As long as you don't need the app ecosystem.
0: Right. And, and, you know, the Chrome browser does have an app ecosystem inside of it with offline HTML5 apps. And, you know, most of the Google apps do offline mode. And and there's a lot of options even within the browser. Um, So... You know, there's the potential there, depending on what your use cases are, that you could get by with this. And um, I don't know. Um the the mm-hmm. new generation of Chromebooks is just starting to ship. Lenovo's got one, Samsung's got a few, um, there's a bunch of others. And so it'll be interesting to see over the next few months as these get out to people's hands whether this is an actual flash in the pan type thing or has some staying power.
1: Right. I mean you have to the one thing you have to worry about is that these are always just someone needing the, somebody killing somebody's story. Right. For their blog.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Uh,
1: and just they going to be
0: the next Windows killer. I've just been surprised at how many people in, like, the real world seem to be taking it semi-seriously. Hmm. Um, I mean, we've got sort of a...
1: I mean, we've had a couple in the house because Rebecca works at Google. And I don't think any of them have ever come out of their box. Yeah. I just don't, there's never a time when I'm like, you know what I need is another computer that doesn't do everything my existing, you know what I mean? Like, if some, if they, I don't, I get why they're better than, like, the shitty laptops most people carry around. You know, like, yeah, it's like an eighth of the weight of your, you know, your crap Dell 15-inch plastic monstrosity. Um, But, like, if you own a nice Mac laptop, right... They're not light. I
0: mean, I guess they're cheaper. That's the one thing they're going for. Them. Right. I mean, I think mm. where they could have one of the pretty much the only thing that I found somewhat interesting and attractive about the original Chromebook was that it came with built-in 3G with a Google subsidized data plan. Um, if you know they were to continue down that, but path that was the dev units that, only, wasn't it? That wasn't. Yeah. I mean, those lost. those were you know it was dev name only because anyone could get them. But yeah. Mm. Um, in any case, if, if they figured out a model like ad supported or something that meant that these Chromebooks always had, you know, had always on connectivity. Um, I can see that being even more attractive to people, but, uh, yeah,
1: I mean the, the real advantage of it is it gets rid of so much margin for error mm-hmm. for a casual computer user. I mean,
0: it's the kind of computer you could conceivably buy for a grandparent and not worry about right there's no backup, there's no viruses there's you know and it, there's no finding the internet, there's no right you log into it using your Google info yeah. uh, when this breaks, you throw it out you, you don't even think about repairing it, you throw it out, you get a new one, you plug in your Google info, and there's all your stuff again yeah um, yeah, I don't know, maybe. It's not me, though. No, it's not me either. But initially, I would say in 2009, I gave it essentially a 0% chance of success, and now I would tick that up slightly. Yay. (laughs) Uh, Google Graph Search. I mean, Facebook Graph Search.
1: This sounds interesting. I haven't looked into it enough.
0: Yeah, this is, and I don't... I don't think think we can get to it yet can we? right now we've just seen demos facebook had a big event this week where they showed off their new search um and you know to some extent it's a feature that they've just been missing for a long time which is that they haven't had a way to search across your facebook network if you wanted to find a particular picture or find a funny comment that someone made there was literally no way to search for that you could search for friends and that was about it um but if you watch some of the demos you can see that they've gone Awful deep on this, and it's both interesting, one, because it sort of puts Facebook into the search game, but I don't think that's really true. But not search. I mean, search is for finding things on the internet.
1: This is something different.
0: Well, I mean, it also has an internet component and all, but, yeah, I I think it's really cool from a computer science perspective because they're doing really cool work in terms of how they relate content together and how they, you know, they do natural language parsing on your search queries, but then they can really solve complicated problems. Um, You know, the demos that they were showing were things like show me all the pictures that my friends have taken in national parks. And what that search is doing is, you know, okay, we've got your network of friends. We know what natural park means. We can associate natural park back to different geolocation information. And then we can search for all of the photos with geolocation tags within the realm of what we think are national park coordinates. Um, and return that to you or, you know, then filter further. Show me all of my friends who are in their 30s who've taken pictures at national parks. And, you know, pretty remarkable. Yeah. It ends up, I mean, it lets you leverage some really
1: interesting data that's sort of been accumulated by the, f- I mean, here's the problem with it. I mean, there's there's a lot of intrinsic knowledge in the system Based on, you know, the good old-fashioned filter bubble ideal where, like, you only are interested in things about yourself or, you know, people who are exactly like you. Which, if this were a somehow like a Twitter graph search, would be pretty effective because I feel like everyone who's on Twitter is exactly like me. I mean, everyone that I follow on Twitter. Right. The problem with
0: Facebook is my graph is so fucked up. Right. Most of the people you're friends with on Facebook have horrible taste.
1: Right. They're people I had the, you know, the completely arbitrary distinction of being in a institution with at
0: some point. Right.
1: And so I'm not sure I care (laughs) what any of them have done. Yeah. Um, And, you know, granted, I could be... I could get rid of
0: all of them from my graph, or I could. I think that this is a start. Making groups. Yeah, exactly. I think Facebook is is moving in the direction of figuring out how to. I don't think they'll go down the path that Google went down with Plus, which is circles. I think they're going to do that instead in an automated way, they've already started to do that with your newsfeed where they show you only things from people who they think you're interested in, um, and filter out a lot of the noise. But I think they're, you know, a few steps away from really understanding who are close friends, who are associates, et cetera, without you having to go in and tag people. Right. I mean, and the problem is I don't, I don't actually use Facebook
1: much. Um, I say I'm going to do it every now and then, and then I never do. Um, But, you know, I've, because of the way that it is, I think I've been more careful than a lot of people about compartmentalizing it.
0: Mm.
1: Like, I don't, you know, I don't put people I've worked with in Facebook, those go in LinkedIn. I don't put, you know, unless we've like been out for drinks or something or, you know, had dinner together outside of a work function. Um, and I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't, I'm not sure there's any information in it in my graph. Yeah. Worth parsing.
0: I think for a lot of people. Though, but I'm not, you know, 17. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other thing is that Facebook, because they've taken this, um, the, the number of services that integrate with Facebook now is obviously massive and, I've really come to see, you know, log in via Facebook as a real value add to a service. I'm much more likely to opt into playing with a service if I don't have to create a dedicated account. Oh, wow. See, I'm the exact opposite way. If a service is Facebook only, I don't try it. Okay. I refuse. So... For me, you know, I've obviously then created these bi-directional connections into a lot of other data sources. I think my Yelp account works that way. My Goodreads account works that way. You know, all these other sources of data about me. And so Facebook can now start to mine that as well. Um, and, you know, that creates that, – that makes their search that much more powerful because it now becomes – a much broader thing. So I can say, right. um, potentially, I don't know that they do this today, but I can potentially say, you know, um, show me the top five books that my friends have read in the last six months that they rated five stars and are about historical fiction in Europe. And, you know, that's a very solvable problem now, given the data, right. they have access to the natural language parsing and the fact that they can do these big data operations. Or find five books
1: that my stepfather would like to read. Yeah. I mean and that's I mean this is where I start getting cynical. How much of this is going to be the UI for their new ad system? Mhm. You know, like I want to tar- I want to make an ad which does this search and then shows it to people. Yeah. Results. I mean, I think that's probably going to
0: be a big. Oh, definitely. I mean, they've already started down that path a bit in terms of what they let you do in targeting ads, but this is going to let them be much, much deeper. Well, it just gives a
1: sort of generic open interface to that. Yeah. Whereas before, I think they had to expose each sort of relationship
0: in their UI. So, yeah, I mean,
1: it's it just, I mean,
0: it's also just cool because it's the type of query that a few years ago would have been completely unthinkable. Um, not just from a parse, you know, natural language parsing perspective dog. Um, but just in terms of the amount of data they're dealing with is pretty unreal. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's cool tech. And I think I'm
1: going to do what I've done so far, which is keep them from having enough information and do anything useful with it. Yeah,
0: for me. seems reasonable. Um, quick note, we I'll throw a link into a camera lens teardown on Gizmodo. Did you look at this? I did. It was nice. Yeah. Lenses are magic. The pictures, I, my only complaint about awful. it was
1: the pictures gave you absolutely no context to yeah.
0: what they were doing. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, what I wanted them to do was run the lens through a bandsaw and, and you know, walk and then more it basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but it's, you know, some teardowns that sort of take you through the different parts that are inside a modern digital SLR lens. And, um, I just find it fascinating because it is such a cool mix of technology and optics and physics and, uh, you know, manufacturing and the fact that there's just so much cool stuff going on inside a lens. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where you know, you pay five hundred bucks for a lens or a thousand bucks for a lens, and you you kind of feel like you're getting your money's worth to some extent. Like, mm-hmm. it's hard to make one of those, right? So, should we don't have it on here, but we should talk about. Did you see that little
1: adapter doohickey?
0: Yeah, I haven't really it's followed that
1: because it. it seems controversial, right? Well, I don't think it's controversial. Um, I think. A lot of people think you're getting something for nothing. Like it's some sort of magic. You know, it's the thing that we're always talking about, how we should make something that does, that makes your cheap thing magically better. Right. And sell it to video people because they always buy into that crap. But I, and I, I, I admit I haven't actually, like, looked at it enough. But what I think it does is it makes a... Overpriced lens, it ekes out performance that had been sort of dropped in your current use case. So I think, I mean, and I don't know if I can find the link for this quick, but I believe what it's about is the distinction between APS-C and full frame. Yeah, I think all they're doing is sort of mucking around with that so that the entire full frame... um, ends up focused on the sensor, which means, you know, because basically what you were doing for a long time is, you know, a large portion of the lens was being used to just light up the back end of the camera Mm. where there wasn't a sensor. And so, you know, what people are reading from this is like, Oh my God, you found a way to take my lens and make it, you know, a stop faster and more light and all those other things. Um, but what I think is actually happening is you were spending too much for your lenses and now you got the, the performance that was engineered into them back, you know, because it's, it's for people who are buying full frame lenses when they didn't need them. Right. So this is called the Metabone,
0: the speed booster. Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah. I'll throw a link into Philip Bloom's testing. He's done probably the most that I've seen. Uh, But yeah, and that's... That is that what you got out of this too? I honestly I haven't even looked at it that much because okay. I, I don't know it just wasn't interesting to me. I, it seems like it's a real thing. It's not a um, a scam or anything. So yeah.
1: Right. I mean, so what they're doing is they're playing with the fact. It's, so it's specifically for the um, the new.
0: Yes. Yeah. You need a yeah. You need a full frame. Full-frame
1: lens and an APS-C or MFT sensor.
0: Right. And so it moves the lens away from the sensor because obviously it's putting something in there. Right. Um, And then has optics to refocus so that the image still hits the right point, but is now focusing the entire image instead of just the part that would fall on the sensor. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because, I mean, if you throw a regular lens on the front of a, APSC, it ends up being longer. Right. So I mean, you know, like I if these were not six hundred bucks, I would consider getting one because I've got that really nice fifty millimeter prime, which is just a little too long to use. You know, I would love to use it on my T2I as just the like walk-around lens. Mm-hmm. I drop the, you know, I've got a really nice zoom lens. The what the eighteen forty eighteen seventy, yep, um, which is a great lens. But you know that the I've got the you know the the second highest tier fifty millimeter prime which full is frame a very nice lens, which is a really really <laughs> nice lens. Um, you know, like it even running, you know, not full frame. It's much faster than my zoom. Getting something like this would make it an incredibly fast lens. Um, and it would be yeah. I mean, but you know, I can get a really nice twenty-eight millimeter for six hundred bucks, and then have a long prime and a short prime. I don't know
0: Yeah. Well, if I've, it was if it was hundred bucks, I would totally get it. And it, it may get to down read to read that. up on this a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, again, it just you know I've seen these things going by on Twitter and. People arguing back and forth about it, but it, it hasn't interested me enough, I guess, to actually jump in and do the research, but I will do that because, uh,
1: but yes, if you, if you have full frame lenses and you don't have a full frame camera, you spent more than you had to, to get yeah.
0: the lens. Yeah.
1: Okay. okay. So no magic here.
0: We all agree. No, no. I, I totally, okay. yes, I, it's, uh, doing things that you can very easily understand just by looking at some diagrams. Okay. But it does actually seem to do those things.
1: Yeah. It was a good idea. I mean, for all those people who, like, are buying full frame, like, I can see why, you know, this makes sense. If you're buying, if you have an APS-C and you're buying all full frame glass with the, like, you know, the plan and or hope that someday you're going to be running a 1D instead of your T2i. Like, yeah,
0: I mean... This is not a bad solution right now, right? Yeah, and that's actually been—I mean, I um, with my my current T three I, I think the the only lens I've got on it right now, I don't even remember. I guess it's the seventeen eighty five, um, but is is not a—it's an EFS lens, I think. Um, right. But back when I had my my last generation Rebel XT and was buying lenses, I was buying exclusively full frame with the thinking that. Well, one, this was a few years ago and there was a lot less option for EFS, but also the thinking being, you know, if I'm investing in glass, glass has a much longer lifespan than camera bodies do. So you may as well get the full frame stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know now. Yeah. I mean, I bought the 1785 and this T3i expecting that it would probably not come off this camera because I am are trying very hard to not get into the lens buying addiction but yeah um, we'll see so chatter chatter you want to go or should i
1: um i can go this was something that came out just today it is an ipad app i'm sure you've seen it on twitter already which is a um it's there some people are build, building it as a game it's kind of like an ebook masterclass sort of video tutorial thing but it is this like hands-on lesson in doing not color correct but like film timing right so color with timing. this guy Dale Gron who's done a, you know like a bunch of the uh What's his name? Spielberg. Spielberg movies. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of neat. Like, he puts up his... Like, they obviously went on and took a bunch of photos. And then he timed them to whatever look he likes. And then you get the original image, and you're, like, told to try to match his image using just, you know... The sorts of controls you would use in old school. Right, one light, two light... Over under density changes things like that.
0: Um, I, I it's it's a really cool app and a, the demo video is really cool. Um, I'm less interested in it as a tool to learn how to do old school color timing, um, but I think that the way they've implemented it as a teaching tool is really smart. And I really hope that they will do the same thing with modern color correction tool sets and techniques. Um, yeah, because they they're able to not only you know, give you this sort of target to aim for, but then they can actually like quantitatively tell you, um, you, you know, you hit it, you didn't hit it because one of the things that's really tough with, um, color correction is to sort of, start to understand what does what and also to understand like why my image is really close but it's not exactly like right. and you can adjust an entirely different set of variables and get something that's really close to the target but is not the target and i think that the fact that they can then go in and say like here's all the things you changed here's what we changed to get this image and you can start to make that connection like
1: right although i mean part of the reason they are able to
0: do that is because there's it's such a simple interface yeah for changing the image but I think you could even distill down a basic tool set out of, um, um resolve or something, you know, you, you wouldn't have to expose the entire interface within one screen. You could start to work with just one set of tools or one, you know, set of adjustments and really build up a whole course, um, you yeah. know, to start to, cause you know, I use resolve and I, I feel like I'm just sort of a monkey jerking levers to, you know, like I know what I want it to look like. And I'll just sort of move things that I sort of think should get us there. But, right, and um, then if one direction makes it closer, great. If the other dir- if not, then go the other direction. Right, and the problem is that you can you can maybe end up where you want, but in the process, you can end up losing a lot of detail. Um, you can, right. you know, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's definitely an interesting thing.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to playing with it. I haven't had a chance to yet. But.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm really I, you know, props to them for coming up with a new way of teaching this stuff. And and um, I hope that they take the underlying methodology and apply it to some other parts of uh, post production and and you know anything else really. Yeah. So. Um, my chatter I just is sort of a general topic, but I um today finally signed up for uh Tripit, which is one of these travel aggregation apps that sort of tracks the idea is that um if you book your airline tickets through one place and your hotels through another place and maybe your you know transfer tickets through another it the idea is it becomes sort of the locker that tracks all of that information and gives you a unified calendar and a unified way to, you know, check on status of everything on your trip and, and um it you know becomes the the hub for your your travel, um, and it got me thinking that it 's such a tricky space because travel travel's one of my passions and it 's something where I have a lot of ideas about things that I think would be interesting applications in the travel space, but I think it 's a really hard equation to solve as a developer you know if you 're looking at it as a commercial tool because travel's not something that any individual person does frequently enough to really build a business model around, right. You know, TripIt has a pro option, but it's $50 a year, which is, to my mind, at least way too expensive for the vast majority of travelers, obviously for a business traveler, a really serious business traveler. It's okay. But, um, the types of apps I'd want to build are not targeted at hardcore business travelers. Right. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that space or yeah, I don't know
1: how you do that. I mean, the the advantage is if you get people at the right time, they're already primed to blow a lot of money. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, people who are vacationing are ready to go, um, but I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough market if for another reason then everyone wants to travel somewhere else too. So you can't, I mean, you can do like a one-off app to do something, you know, like visit Bermuda. Um, but to do an app that's useful, you know, worldwide and everything else seems like a daunting challenge. Yeah.
0: and uh, I don't know, know how- I'll be curious. You haven't started using it yet, have you? Well, yeah. So I um, one of the cool things about TripIt, the thing that actually I signed up, years ago and just never even really played with it but now they've got the ability to integrate with gmail accounts um and to scan your email for anything that they think is travel related and so i that actually sucked me in because it let me you know tie in my gmail account and then it pulled out i've got i think um you know five different flights booked at this point um Five different trips, and it went in and pulled those all out. Um, pulled out, for example, tickets to um, some events we're going to at Macworld next week and other things during two weeks, um, and knew that those were associated with the trip and figured out hotels. And you know, it's a really nice job. And then they've got an iCal or a CalDAV feed, so I was able to subscribe within, in my case, BusyCal um, and have a calendar now that has all of my flight info. And also, they populate in things like how to get from the airport to your hotel, and and all of that right within the calendar, which will then also sync to the phone. And so they, you know, it's the kind of thing that you could definitely do yourself. But uh, my method prior to this had been just to forward all that stuff into Evernote, um, and this is to me a, a real value add over Evernote, and and, and enough yeah. of value add that I'm willing to deal with the hassle of getting you known as a new service. Hmm. Yeah. I mean. It sounds interesting. But but again I think that, you know, I'm probably I mean like I travel a fair amount and even in that case, you know, I'm not willing to pay the fifty bucks. And so you start to think about the business case for developing apps for this space and it just seems tricky. I don't
1: people know. travel for work predominantly, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's you know, enough people like that in order
0: to sustain it. Yeah, and subsidize casual travelers if you can yeah. develop an app that has enough crossover. Um Yeah. And we'll see. I mean I, I again I've only been using TripIt in earnest for you know six hours now or something. Um we'll see if they have sort of intolerable spam telling me about all of the great things I can do on my trips and whatnot. I sort of assume they will. But Yeah. That's true. Um anywho. It's a space I'm interested in, and I would like to see more innovation there because I think it's rife for innovation, ripe for innovation. It's one ripe. of those things. Ripe. What, what's mm. rife? I don't think that's actually a word. Okay. Well, I, it's rife for being a new word. <laughs> oh, okay. God. Okay. With that, um, I think uh, I should let you go. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Okay. Later.